Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. There are some enthusiastic individuals around who love to grab news headlines on world events and suggest they are the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Now, while the Bible was written for us, it's not written to us specifically, so it's precarious at least to suggest that current political events are a direct fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Tonight's discussion will stimulate your thinking for sure. Let's join Dr. Corbett for News That Confounds. In Jeremiah chapter 1, God said, I've called you to be a prophet to the nations. And so from around about chapter 23 or so, we see that Jeremiah has been prophesying very briefly to the nations. And now we're, we're coming toward the end of his life. And in, in a few weeks, he will be dead. Now he turns his attention to the nation of Syria. Its capital was Damascus. Damascus was 70 miles, so about 110, 140 kilometres inland from the coast, the Mediterranean coast. It was right on a river. It had plenty of water, something of tremendous value to a Middle Eastern city. And so it was very lush, it was very prosperous and many traders would venture through Damascus on their way to one of three places usually because there was such an abundance of water. So it was a beautiful city, it was a prosperous city and Damascus was something that was the jewel of the Middle East in many respects. A city of peace, a city that had incredible architecture and was famous for its beautiful public gardens. Just a beautiful city. We're reading from verse 23. Concerning Damascus, Hamath and Arpad are confounded. These are two of the cities near Damascus. For they have heard bad news. They melt in fear. They are troubled like the sea that cannot be quiet. This is a, an amazing picture that brings up these nautical terms, these seafaring terms. If you've ever been on a sea crossing, the sailors, the seasoned sailors who do the things like the uh, Hobart to Sydney will talk about the fastest seas are the green seas, and it's called sailing green. And if you're a sailor, you know what sailing green means. It means you are within a whisker of losing your life because the seas are so rough and everything's moving so fast. And they, they, there's all these reality TV programs about the fishermen of the Bering Strait and all this sort of stuff, and they go out. And, and it's funny, not funny, it's really not funny, 20 boats can go out at the start of the season and 12 can come back because the other eight were lost at sea. It's, it's dangerous water. And they show the, the terror that some of these sailors have to go through. And this verse is a picture of hardened sailors who've experienced the tumult of waters, hearing what's happened to Damascus and thinking... That's scary. And if they think that's scary, whatever happened to Damascus must have been off the charts. So let's read on. Um, knowing that Damascus was a city 
that went to war with Jerusalem many times. For some reason, they just had it in for the Hebrews. They had it in for the Israelites. So this city seems to have plotted several times. You'll read about the battles that King David had, the battles that that other kings had in trying to subdue Damascus. And sometimes they just weren't able to do it, so they hired foreign armies to help them do it. As I mentioned, Damascus was a prosperous city, and this, is, this helps us to understand why it was such a confounding thing, because it was almost the centre of the Middle East, because everything hubbed kind of through Damascus. It was the centre of the three major trade routes of the day, the, the route that went to Egypt, the route that went to Mecca in Saudi, what we call Saudi Arabia today, what they called Arabia, and to Babylon. In Isaiah 17, which uh, Isaiah is about 100 or so years, 150 years before Jeremiah, he says in chapter 17, an oracle concerning Damascus, behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aurora are deserted. They will be uh, for flocks which will lie down and none will make them afraid. Now, if you're reading that today and you, you read about the nation of Syria becoming a pile of ruins and Damascus being utterly destroyed, you would think this was a newspaper because that is what is happening today. You may have heard of ISIS. That's, what, that's where all this sort of seed bedded in Damascus and Syria and so both Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesied the destruction, as we'll see in Jeremiah in a moment, the destruction of Damascus, the capital of Syria. Now, this has led some preachers to suggest that these prophecies that Isaiah and Jeremiah gave, which we're about to read, are now being fulfilled in our day. Here's a couple of examples. It's interesting when Fox News picks up on this. So this is uh, one of the Fox reporters. She's interviewing a, apparently a Bible prophecy expert. Uh, I think this was fairly recently. And this is a YouTube clip. So this was on Fox News. Bible prophecy expert says what's happening in Syria is fulfilment of Bible prophecy. Uh, crisis in Syria and the Bible signs prophecies of the apocalypse end of the world. Hmm. Here's another one. This is not my most favourite website, let me tell you. The Rapture Forums, where it says the same thing, that what's happening in Damascus and Assyria today is the fulfilment of the prophecies of Jeremiah and Isaiah. And I could go on and on and on. Here's the problem with this. And just let me tell you straight up, I think these sorts of things are completely misguided and I want to tell you basically why. It's the same reason when, I, and I wrote just briefly on andrewcorbett.net, I just put a very brief article, why the Brexit was not prophesied in the Bible. And I must be the only, I feel like the only Christian pastor in the world who thinks it isn't. Because there's, again, all sorts of Bible prophecy websites that are going, Brexit, there's got to be a Bible verse here somewhere for that. And I'm just amazed at how they're taking scriptures like Revelation 18, calling Europe the harlot of Babylon and how 
England is a type of Israel and they've pulled out to save the world. And it's like, ah, this is... Anyway, anyway, I've written about it. Any Bible prophecy, just like any other part of Scripture, has one intended meaning. Therefore, it has one pos- only one possible fulfilment. So what, what that means is, for example, when Isaiah says in Isaiah 7.14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a child and call his name Emmanuel. There's a Bible prophecy. How many possible fulfilments can there be in this world, in life, of a virgin conceiving a child, a virgin conceiving a child and calling his name Emmanuel, which means God with us? How many did God have in mind when he gave that prophecy to Isaiah? I think it's one. I think, I think you'll find that principle applies to every Bible prophecy. God has one thing in mind. And this is how I can be pretty sure he had one thing in mind because Isaiah prophesied that the Assyrians would come in and destroy Damascus. And they did. This is how I can be sure that Jeremiah had one thing in mind because when they rebuilt Damascus, it was the Babylonians who came in and destroyed Damascus. Now, if you don't know anything about history, you could well read this and go, oh, the rapture forum's right. This is Bible prophecy happening right here, right now in front of our eyes. And you could be really, really misled. And here's my, my concern. And I was talking with a pastor earlier this week who, who said that he's got people who he knows no longer go to church because when they were coming up through the church a bit younger, they were told the Bible prophesied a one world government, the Bible prophesied a silicon chip, which would be the mark of the beast and the Bible. And all of this stuff is sort of falling by the wayside and it's causing people to go, well, maybe the Bible hasn't got a clue what it's talking about. And here's my alternate viewpoint to that. Maybe the people who claim this nonsense haven't got a clue what they're talking about. We need to understand this principle. And I don't think this is hard to understand. Every passage of Scripture is written for us, but none of it is written to us. You know how I know that? You know how I know that, um, Marco? Because I cannot find a book in this Bible that says Marco. Mark. There's Mark. Okay. You got me. All right. There goes that theory. <laughs> Work with me a bit closer next time, Marco. It's when you read this is just follow me here. When you read something out of Ephesians and the opening line says to the Ephesians, who do you reckon it's to? The Ephesians. The Ephesians. It's not to Lagana. But you know what? It's for Lagana. We can take it and do something with it. So this is really important. When we read Ephesians, it was actually written to the Ephesians. When we read Colossians, it was written to the Colossians. When we read the Gospel of Matthew, who knows who that was written to? Jews. It was written to Jews of of that day. Matthew, Mark. All right, smarty pants. Who was Mark? (laughs) Who was Mark written to? The Romans. That's right. When we read Luke, who was Luke written to? Theophilus. It was. So... 
Luke and Acts was written to Theophilus, a Gentiles, and it's largely a Gentile audience. Luke was a Gentile. And John, the Gospel of John was written to who? Someone said it before about Luke. John was written to Greeks. So when you understand that, it helps you to understand, hopefully, even books like the book of Revelation. All right, we're in verse 24. Damascus has become feeble. She turned to flee and panic seized her. Anguish and sorrow have taken hold of her as of a woman in labour. Verse 25. How is the famous city not forsaken? The city of my joy. And, and really what, what this is saying is the people who love Damascus, these people who are utterly confounded at what has happened to Damascus, they're going, okay, um, destroy Jerusalem. We, we get that. Destroy uh, Memphis, which today we call Cairo. We get that. Destroy these major cities of the world. But not Damascus. Don't, don't, don't. Destroy the most beautiful city on the face of the planet with the most beautiful architecture and the most beautiful public gardens and the most beautiful waterways. Don't destroy that city. That's just vandalism. Why would anyone do that? This is what that's the sentiment of this verse. How is this famous city not forsaken? It should have been forsaken. It should have been left alone. The city of my joy. Verse 26. Therefore, her young men shall fall in her squares and all her soldiers shall be destroyed in that day, declares the Lord of hosts. Verse 27, and I will kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus. This wall, presumably made of rock and clay, that ordinarily fire doesn't destroy I couldn't even burn, but here God says it's going to happen. And it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad, which was the king of Syria, whose palace was in Damascus. So here we have Jeremiah prophesying that Damascus, this beautiful city, this glorious city, shall be destroyed. I guess if we look at this city, it was a city of tremendous pride and it considered itself far too important for any invading army to come in. I mean, after all, this was the hub of the Middle Eastern trade routes. If you wanted water and supplies, you really need this city to be there. So why would anyone want to destroy it was part of their thinking. They're far too important to ever be destroyed. And of course, that leads to a kind of a cocky arrogance, doesn't it? It can do. And it certainly did for Damascus. And because of this, you can imagine the, the beauty of this city, the, the gardens and the, 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 the marvellous architecture and the statues and the wonder of the city. And I remember the f first time I went to Paris, it's actually, it's a beautiful city. God knows there's a lot of hurt and brokenness in that city, but it's a beautiful city. And I guess looking at that from a modern perspective, this is something I guess guess of Damascus's attitude about itself. It was beautiful. It had tremendous wealth. It was popular among all people. It was a very cosmopolitan city. We will never be destroyed because of these features. And yet they had encounters with prophets. You may recall the story of uh, El Elisha who had an encounter with the army from Syria. You may remember this, where 
he was always giving the king of Israel a heads up on where the Syrian army was. And the Syrian king was ticked. How, how is the king of Israel always one step ahead of me? And they said, it's because of the prophet Elisha. He's always hearing from God and telling the king where you'll be. And the king, you remember the story? The king said, well, that's it. Let's get rid of this guy there. Let's get rid of Elisha. So, they, so that he sends his entire army to defeat this old bloke, Elisha. And there he is around the, the hilltops, ready to come and invade this poor old man and in his little cottage with his mate helping him, whose name was, uh, you might recall, Gehazi. And here they were, and, and Gehazi goes out. I, I can only imagine it, was, it went something like this. I'll just take the dirty water out. Opens the door and there's soldiers, shields, swords, bucklers, bows and arrows. And they're coming down the hill and they're all converging on this house. Goes back in and says, Elisha, we may have a problem. <laughs> What's the problem? There is an entire army surrounding our house about now. And Elisha doesn't even get up out of his chair. You remember the story? Where Elisha says... Oh, Gehazi. <laughs> remember, anyone remember what he told Gehazi? There are more for us than there are against us. And Gehazi's looking at going, here's an old guy sitting in a chair. He's lost it. And Elijah then lifts his eyes to heaven and prays a very short prayer. Does anyone remember the prayer? Lord, open his eyes. And isn't that interesting? I just find that fascinating because his eyes were open, but not the eyes that counted. And so, Lord, open his eyes. Amen. Gehazi, go and have another look. And so as he goes out again, he now sees this vast army storming down the hills, ready to come, and then... Hang on, just behind them, he sees guys on bigger horses with bigger swords, gleaming white with kind of these wings. And he goes, where did they come from? And you know what? They were there all along. He just couldn't see them. And he comes back in and he says, Elijah, there's an army of angels on horses with, and they look ticked. He says, yeah, they've been there all along. We'll be okay. You watch what happens next. Oh, Lord, blind them. Elijah says, I think I'll get up now. And out he goes of his house. And he goes over to the captain of the Syrian army and, and says, come with me. He says, oh, like a Jedi, come with me. And so he says, I think we'll come with you. And the whole army comes with this old guy, and he leads them to the palace of the king of Israel. And the king of Israel says, Elijah, uh, Elisha, I, I notice you've got an army with you today. He was a perceptive bloke, not like normal guys. This one could actually see the milk in the fridge. So, <laughs> shall I strike them down, was his question. And do you remember Elisha's answer? No. Put on a feast. And feed them. Say what? It's New Testament grace. And so he does. 
And then he says, oh Lord, open their eyes. And the Syrian guys realise, we're in the palace of the king of Israel. We've just had the most scrumptious feast. Anyone else here today feel like not killing anyone? <laughs> and they go back and, and it's the most powerful exchange. And with those seeds, you can imagine the captain of the army going back going, why did he do that? And that's what, an, that's what a random act of kindness in the name of Christ can do to somebody whose heart is hostile and hard. And so the seeds of Syria coming to know God was there. And yet they hardened their heart. They refused to surrender to God, even with such a powerful, dramatic encounter as that. And because they had refused to surrender, and doesn't surrender challenge our pride? I mean, if I say to you, come on, you've got to surrender, it's, it's like, I'm gonna, like we saw with Jeremiah and King Zedekiah. You can live, but you'll be a slave. Oh, I will never be a slave. You already are a slave. And we're all slaves. It's just, who are we going to be a slave to? They'd refused to surrender God, and they'd refused to put their trust in him. And now they're going to be condemned. And I see in this a, a parallel between people's eternity we can share with them and, and we can share a simple message and perhaps at the risk of sounding oversimplistic, unless you surrender to Christ, unless you turn to Christ and trust him for your salvation and live the kind of life that shows that you're following him, you will be condemned, damned in hell for eternity. And that's the truth. And that's why Jesus died as our substitute. And that's why he pleaded in Luke 13, words of Jesus, red letter, unless you repent, you will perish in hell for eternity. That's what Jesus said. And I see a parallel here between Damascus and many people today. And, and I, guess, I guess the reason they hadn't been prepared to humble themselves and surrender and put their faith in the God of the Bible, is because when they were looking down the road at Jerusalem, they saw King Zedekiah and all these guys committing adultery, committing immorality, throwing their children in the furnace, robbing, stealing, worshipping idols, and thinking to themselves, you guys are no better than us. You are hypocrites. Why would we want to serve your God? Some of the things that you do are worse than the things that we do. And we thought we were pretty bad, dude. <laughs> Why would we want to turn to your God when you live like that? And that's called hypocrisy. And I'm guessing, I'm guessing Jerusalem had lost its credibility with Damascus because of its hypocrisy. And again, I see a parallel for us today. Are we who tell people, that sexual sin will put them in not only mortal peril, but eternal peril. Dabbling in internet porn? Are we dabbling in lustful temptations? Are we dabbling in this stuff? And we dare tell the world that their sexual proclivities are wrong? So I think today, as followers of Christ, as I look at this passage and I look at the 
the doom that did indeed meet Damascus and they were indeed destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. It actually did happen. Sorry, Rapture Forums. It's, that prophecy's ticked off. It's, and so am I. And it happened. And so today, I think we learn the lessons. Jerusalem wasn't living faithfully to God. The Jews had abandoned God and his word. And today we can see, looking back, it had a disastrous effect on the surrounding nations. And as someone who cares deeply about our nation and, and the people in it, as I'm sure you all do, I, I, I hope that we have a commitment to be the kind of people that allows Christ to change us into who he wants us to be. What's most important to you? Is having a boyfriend the most important thing in your life right now? Having a girlfriend the most important thing in your life right now? Having a new iPhone? Samsung Intergalactic S17? I don't know, whatever. Is that the most important thing? Or is coming to know Christ and discovering that he doesn't want you to be religious, he wants you to be who he's made you to be. And can I tell you, in that, because I know that God is the happiest person in the universe, if you do what he wants for your life, you too will become happy. You will. You'll be happy. And as I think about Damascus, I think, where else does Damascus feature in the Bible? And it features pretty early in the New Testament, doesn't it? In the book of Acts, it features pretty early. And when... The church founded, it, it, it had many persecutors and one of them was actually on the road to Damascus to destroy the church. Remember the, this story? And so when Saul of Tarsus arrived in Damascus, you remember what had happened on that road? Knocked off his horse, knocked blind, there to persecute Christians. He's off to Damascus. That city of, that was rebuilt after Jeremiah said it would be destroyed and, and he gets there he was thinking he would get there to destroy Christians when in fact he's met Christ on that road and now he's blinded by Christ. And Ananias, a Christian believer in Damascus, comes up to him, sent by Jesus, and prays that he might see. Remember? Elisha, Syrians. People tend to get blind from Syria. And here's Damascus. Paul, blind. Ananias prays for his eyes to be opened. And do you remember... Do you remember what happened? It was when Saul humbled himself that the scales fell from his eyes and he could see. And boy, did he see. Boy, did he see differently. And can I tell you today, you may well have scales on your eyes. And if you'll turn to Christ and ah, can I just say, Christian, you might think, yeah, preacher, you, you, just give, you give it to him. You give, I'm talking to you too. Because sometimes we don't see well. We're blind. And I wonder what would happen if we all right now prayed a prayer. Jesus, help me to see what you want me to see. I wonder whether you would see this world differently. I wonder whether you would see people who look like the weirdest, nuttiest people as hurting, broken, confused and lost people who are desperately looking for a saviour they've never heard of. I wonder, just one little prayer right now where you're seated. Jesus, help me to see. And I've discovered this, that because I know from my own life, you can't 
have your eyes open unless you're prepared to humble yourself. And this is what I've also discovered, that it could be you today and you may think, I can't even see that there is a God and yet one prayer, God help me to see you, could not only open your eyes so that you see him, but could actually begin the healing process of healing the deep ache in your soul. And today you can have your eyes opened and your broken soul healed as well. Perhaps you are here and you don't know Christ. Perhaps you're here and you've been brought up in a Christian home and you've been on the fringe. Perhaps you have got to that point where you think, I just want to do just enough and not much more. I'm ticked with the hypocrisy. I just want to stay on the edge. I'll occasionally turn up in church. It'll just be me and Jesus from now on. I'm just not interested in anything else. And can I tell you, that's how a wounded soul talks. That's how a hurt person talks. And today Jesus wants to heal your heart. Jesus wants you to become fully devoted, set on fire for him. And here's my question. Will you open your heart to God and allow him to begin to heal your soul? Saul met with news that confounded him on the road to Damascus. When he surrendered his heart, his eyes were opened. When we surrender our hearts to God, our eyes too may be opened. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, News to Confound, are available via the website findingtruthmatters.org or by contacting us at Lagana Media, PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. For updates and special offers, please visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.